Thanks for listening to this month's segment of Speak Up for a Species here on A Walk in the Wild Side, a veterinary podcast. This podcast is designed to educate veterinary professionals and other animal lovers on all things wildlife, zoo, aquatic, and exotic. Just a reminder, these short segments of Speak Up for a Species are dedicated to share facts about a specific species and highlight diseases or threats they may face and what we can all do to help conserve the animals we love. I'm your host, Kyle Kansman, a fourth-year veterinary student at Michigan State University. Sorry it's been a while since a new episode has come out. Life was a little crazy with externships, rotations, and the endless studying for my veterinary licensing exam. But I am so happy to be back in the swing of things and recording more content for all of y'all. This episode, I will be highlighting a species listed on the Endangered Species Act, living right here in the United States, that unfortunately has had a difficult year this species being the Florida manatee. I'll touch on facts about the Florida manatee and then discuss the different diseases and threats that they face, as well as what we can all do to help. Then, at the end of the episode, we'll play a little game of fact or fiction to test our manatee memory. There are three species of manatees, the West Indian manatees, the African manatees, and the Amazonian manatees. The West Indian manatees have two recognized subspecies, one being the Antillean manatee and one being the Florida manatee, which is the one that will be the focus of our episode today. The Florida manatee is found in the Western Atlantic Ocean, primarily along the Florida coast, hence its name. However, they can also be found along the more southeastern states and a little more west towards Texas in the summers when the ocean waters are warmer. Manatees live in warmer waters along the ocean coast, or in bays, estuaries, or more shallow rivers, or even hot springs. And with the degradation or loss of some of their natural areas of warmer water, like certain hot springs, manatees have been increasingly found near more man-made or artificial sources of warm water, like near power plants. Now, manatees tend to congregate in the warmer waters because cooler water temperatures are one of the factors that actually stimulates migration. And this is because manatees cannot tolerate water below 68 degrees Fahrenheit for prolonged periods, for they are at risk for cold stress syndrome or cold stun, and that can be a life-threatening condition, which we'll talk about later on in the episode. Manatees' closest living relatives are known as dugongs. However, dugongs have more of a streamlined body, they don't have nails on their flippers, and their fluke is actually bilobed, or they have two lobes on their tail. Now, the manatee's closest land relative is none other than the elephant. Manatees are listed as threatened on the Endangered Species Act and vulnerable on the ICUN Red List, and therefore, they are species that are continually protected and monitored. So, what do manatees look like then? Well, manatees are predominantly gray with thick and wrinkled skin similar to their elephant relatives. They are large, but they actually don't have very thick fat reserves and certainly don't have blubber like other marine mammal species, hence their heavy reliance on warmer ambient water temperatures. Manatees can actually live to be 50 to 70 years old, and they average about 9 to 10 feet in length and average about 900 to 1,200 pounds, so similar to the weight of a concert grand piano. And females, well, females tend to be larger than males, So manatees are yet another fan of Beyonce's song, Who Run the World, Girls. And yes, I know I sounded almost identical to Beyonce when I sang that. Other than size, one way to tell males and females apart is by looking at their genital openings on their ventrum or their underside. 
male genital openings is just caudal or towards the tail to the umbilicus or in sense kind of their belly button so it looks like they almost have two indentations or holes closer together as compared to females where females genital opening is even farther from the umbilicus located closer to the tail but still just cranial or towards the head from the anus Manatees have two front flippers, which have toenails, and then they have a large, round, and flattened tail fluke that looks like a big pancake that helps propel themselves forward in the water. They often also use their front flippers to almost walk along the seafloor while they eat. Manatees only have molar teeth, which wear down and are lost throughout their lifetime as a result of their diet. Manatees have a unique dental replacement system referred to as molar progression, which is like a conveyor belt system where the most rostral teeth, or the ones closer towards the nose and the mouth, are continually replaced with teeth behind them throughout a manatee's lifetime. One unique and cool anatomical feature that manatees have are vibrasa on their lips and parts of their face. These vibrasa are like little tactile hairs that are very sensitive to the environment and may even serve as a modality to understand water currents or the structures in their environment, almost similar to the sensory capabilities of fish with their lateral lines. This likely helps manatees understand their environment, as their vision is pretty poor and the environment they live in is often rather murky or cloudy, not really allowing for great vision anyway. Unlike other aquatic mammals like cetaceans or dolphins and whales, manatees also don't have the ability to echolocate to evaluate their environment either. Interestingly, quite a bit of research surrounding manatees' vibrasa is being done at Moat Marine Lab and Aquarium in Sarasota, Florida, which is an incredible place and I highly recommend visiting or at least looking into the facility if you are interested. Another very unique and cool anatomical feature of manatees is their diaphragm. The diaphragm is a sheet of tissue that separates the chest cavity and the abdominal cavity in mammals. In most mammals, the diaphragm is vertical, and it separates the more cranial, or closer to the head, that's going to be the chest cavity, from the more caudal abdominal cavity, or the closer towards the back end or the tail. In manatees, because of the elongated position of the lungs, the diaphragm actually runs predominantly horizontally from the neck and extending the entire length of the body cavity. The diaphragm therefore separates the lungs in the chest cavity that are more dorsally placed, meaning closer to the back, from the abdominal cavity that is more ventrally placed, meaning closer to the underside, in comparison to the vertically oriented diaphragm separating cavities cranial and caudal in other mammals. Manatees then also have a transverse septum that is separate from the diaphragm that actually does come down vertically to separate the heart from the abdominal organs, so the heart is still separate from the abdominal cavity like it is in other mammals. So what about manatees' diet? Well, manatees are herbivorous animals, hence why their nickname is the sea cow, since like our land-dwelling cows, they feed on vegetation all day, every day. They have highly mobile and powerful lips for prehensile strength, meaning they use their lips to grasp and pull seagrass and other vegetation into their mouth. Manatees have a low metabolism, and in fact, their GI transit time, meaning the time it takes for digesta to move through their GI tract, takes an average of seven days. Could you imagine if those fish tacos or that overpriced salad you just ate took a week to move through your system until it made its final exit? That sounds like a nightmare. 
but for manatee, it's just a normal casual week. Manatees are actually pretty important for the ecosystem and influencing the vegetation that grows in their habitat, and the mainstay of the manatee's diet comes from seagrass. Manatees actually eat 10-15% to of their body weight in seagrass and vegetation each day, spending about 8 hours grazing, so the majority of their day similar to many herbivorous animals. Manatees are also pretty slow-moving mammals, with an average speed of about 3-5 to miles per hour, so basically an average human walking speed, or maybe like the grandma power walking in the mall, so usually they're not in a huge hurry to go anywhere. Manatees also sleep for almost half the day, so about 10 to 12 hours each day, and can sometimes be found napping upside down. So this is probably similar to how long some people will be sleeping after New Year's Eve tonight. Except manatees have to kind of do it in quick power nap sessions, since like other marine mammals, manatees need to surface to breathe, usually every few minutes or so, but they can hold their breath for up to 20 minutes. So actually, maybe not the way you want to sleep after New Year's Eve. So what about manatees' reproduction? While manatees may be capable of breeding year-round, Florida manatees are considered seasonal breeders in the warmer months. They reach sexual maturity usually around 3-5 to years, but it's actually more dependent on size than it is age. Gestation for a manatee is approximately 14 months, so a couple months over a year, and females give birth to one calf, and very, very rarely to twins. Calves are usually about 60 to 70 pounds and 3 to 4 feet long, and they can actually swim independently within the first day of life. Calves nurse underwater using the teats located in the axilla, or the armpit regions of the mothers. And calves usually remain dependent on their mothers for the first year or two years of their life, so fairly big commitment for these moms. That's why moms also only reproduce approximately every three years, so a pretty prolonged calving interval as well. This is a part of why their population growth is slow and can be devastated by a quick decline in a population that does not allow for time for them to recover. So what about the diseases and threats that manatees do face? Well, luckily, manatees don't really have any natural predators. However, some calves may fall victim to larger sharks or other predators, but still, this is pretty uncommon. Instead, the biggest threat that manatees face are from anthropogenic threats, with the primary threat being boat collisions, as this is the largest threat that manatees face. Death from boat collisions is most commonly a result of blunt trauma, but can also be secondary to severe wounds, to blood loss, or just severe compromise of internal organs or the manatee's ability to forage or sustain normal function. Manatees also face other anthropogenic factors, such as habitat loss and degradation, fishing gear entanglement, like things from fishing line or crab pots, as well as the human influence on climate change that can impact manatees. One of the non-anthropogenic threats that plagues manatees is harmful algal blooms. Harmful algal blooms are a result of a major increase in the algae that produce biotoxins that can cause significant morbidity and mortality to marine life. These algal cells discolor the water based on their pigmentation and can exhibit distinct coloration, similar to what's known as the famous Florida red tide and its biotoxin it produces, known as bravetoxin. Bravetoxins are neurotoxins produced by certain harmful algal blooms, such as the dinoflagellant species K. breves. Bravetoxin is the most responsible biotoxin for manatee deaths in the United States. 
most manatees are affected either by ingesting the brevet toxin in the water or unfortunately from inhalation after it becomes aerosolized from the surf, waves, or from wind. These toxins remain fairly stable in the environment for prolonged periods of time, including within the seagrass that manatees eat. Unfortunately, this means that brevet toxins can wreak havoc on manatee populations for periods after an algal bloom occurs. The main clinical signs seen from brevet toxins are a result of neurologic disease, leading to things like muscle fasciculations, seizures, ataxia or incoordination, difficulty swimming or potentially drowning, and disorientation. Manatees can also exhibit respiratory signs, such as dyspnea or abnormal breathing or GI signs, depending on the route of transmission of the toxin. Unfortunately, manatees are most often found dead after brevet toxicosis. If they are found alive, supportive care and mechanisms for preventing manatees from drowning become particularly important. And thankfully, if manatees are given adequate care, many times they can recover within a day from their neurologic disease. In fact, a proceeding from the IAAAM 45th Annual Meeting by Ball et al. in 2014 highlighted the use of flotation devices as well as protocols with atropine and erythromycin that led to a successful release for affected manatees in over 90% of cases. Another threat that manatees face is something called cold stress syndrome, or can also be known as being cold stunned. As touched on earlier in this episode, Florida manatees cannot withstand prolonged periods of exposure to waters with temperatures below 68 degrees Fahrenheit, as this can lead to what's known as cold stress syndrome. For reference, syndrome refers to a collection of associated clinical signs or abnormalities that characterize a specific condition, different from a disease that is a defined illness with a described etiology or cause. The phrase cold stun actually may sound very familiar as well, as earlier this year, a mass event occurred in sea turtles suffering from cold stun in Texas in the southern United States. In acute or sudden cases of exposure in cold stress syndrome, this can lead to life-threatening hypothermia or low core body temperature, or particularly in calves or young adults with lower body fat. In more chronic or prolonged exposure to cold, these colder temperatures, it will lead to more systemic disorders, including changes in their metabolism, acid-base disturbances, electrolyte abnormalities, immunocompromise, and an inability to forage properly, leading to malnutrition in addition to the depletion of their fat or energy reserves. One sequela discussed by Barrett Clow et al., and so sorry if I just butchered your name, in a 2017 article in Diseases of Aquatic Organisms is thromboembolic disease secondary to hypercoagulability. This means that the body's clotting system is abnormally overstimulated, leading to more and more clots forming and potentiating the risk of a clot lodging into a blood vessel and causing obstruction of blood flow to important tissues or organs in the body. So, this is similar to what we think about in disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, for any of the veterinary professionals or students listening. Now, I have a special love for learning about coagulation and DIC, but either way, I do think this article is a good one to check out if you have the time. Now, treatment of cold stress syndrome is largely focused on supportive care, depending on the sequela of the disease at the time of presentation, if the manatee is brought in time to a rehabilitation facility. 
Now, in addition to these other known threats to the Florida manatee, 2021 has been a particularly difficult year. An unusual mortality event, or UME, was declared by NOAA and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services as the mortalities in 2021 met the criteria to be considered a UME. Over a thousand manatees have died in 2021, according to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, making this the deadliest year on record for the Florida manatee. The main concern is thought to be a result of the environmental conditions in parts of the Indian River Lagoon leading to starvation. Poor water quality in these regions has led to pollution-fueled loss of seagrass as well as harmful algal blooms, which has ensued a large-scale ongoing manatee die-off, with the root cause being this UME. Florida Fish and Wildlife continues to work with multiple partners, including one being the Manatee Rescue and Rehabilitation Partnership, to both analyze the cause of the UME, as well as to rescue and possibly rehabilitate distressed manatees and explore the solutions to hinder this increased decline of Florida manatees. At the time of this podcast episode, the most recent update from the 2021 UME discussed a supplemental feeding trial utilizing PVC pipe floating devices with lettuce in hopes that it will provide food for manatees within the area. This trial is on top of the other efforts being done, including rescues, monitoring, develop rehabilitation capabilities, and so on. For more information and updates, please visit myfwc.com. So what can we do to help? For people in the area of Florida, there are a few ways that you can help with Florida manatees. One is to call Florida's Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission Wildlife Alert Number if you ever see an injured, sick, orphaned, or deceased manatee. This number for your reference is 1-888-404-3922. Another is to respect manatees in their habitat when out boating. This means being vigilant when driving your boat, keeping your distance, and observing from respectable distance so you don't disturb or injure manatees. This also means respecting the water laws and waterway signs in place and making sure you slow down in areas where manatees are there to reduce the risk of a boat collision. You can additionally purchase either a Save the Manatee license plate or a manatee decal where the purchase donates money to protecting the Florida manatees. And lastly, you can be active in your community and help with beach cleanups and keep the waters free of trash, debris, pollution, and fishing line that can impact manatees. For people anywhere in the country and the world, you can donate to organizations dedicated to helping the Florida manatee, such as the Manatee Rescue and Rehabilitation Partnership, Mount Marine Laboratory and Aquarium, or in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, among many more. Links to some of these organizations can be found on our website page in the blog section under Speak Up for a Species, the Florida Manatee. Please also share this episode and spread the word about the dire situation the Florida manatee faces, especially given the recent increase in mortalities this past year. All right, well, let's switch some gears to hopefully a more fun note and play Fact or Fiction, Manatee Edition. So here's how the game works. I will say something about manatees that is either a fact or fiction, and I'll pause for a few seconds for all of you listening at home to take a guess. Then I'll reveal the answer after five seconds or so are up. So basically, it's a low-stakes true or false questions where no one really cares if you get it right or wrong, except if you do get it wrong, my heart and soul will be crushed. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Or am I? All right, well, let's do this. Question number one. Legend has it that manatees were actually sighted and confused by sailors to be mermaids. 
That is fact. While manatees may not have the same curvy figure and luscious red locks as Ariel, manatees were thought to be mistaken as mermaids by sailors, according to legend, and may actually be the origin of the myth of mermaids. Manatees even belong to the order Cyrenians, which Siren in Greek mythology refers to a woman whose songs lured sailors and their ships into the rocks, which that type of mermaid would have made for a completely different type of Disney movie. Alright, number two. Manatees are one of the mammals that do not have seven cervical vertebrae, or in other words, the vertebra of the spine in their neck. That is fact. Manatees only have six cervical vertebrae, meaning they only have six vertebral bodies that make up their spine and the neck. They are one of only two mammals that are an exception to the rule that mammals have seven cervical vertebrae. So what is the other mammal, you ask? Well, even with giraffes' incredibly long necks and even a shrewd, tiny little body, they still have seven cervical vertebrae. The other unique mammal straying from the seven cervical vertebra rule is no other than the sloth, which can have actually up to eight to ten cervical vertebra. Because why not, right? They already are pretty unusual animals anyway, so why not add to the extraordinary weirdness that are sloths? Okay, so let's maybe get back to manatees real quick. Question number three. On average, the most common cause of death in Florida manatees is from harmful algal blooms. That is fiction. The most common cause of death in Florida manatees is a result of anthropogenic factors, with boat collisions and strikes being the primary reason. Harmful algal blooms, as well as cold stress syndrome and other natural causes of death like parasite infections, are also identified as contributors to mortality, but do not contribute nearly to the amount that atherogenic factors do. Question number four. Manatees are referred to as sea cows, and just like cows, manatees are considered foregun fermenters, or otherwise known as ruminants, in which feed is fermented by microorganisms like bacteria in a compartment called the rumen before going through the true stomach. That is fiction. Yes, it is true that manatees are called sea cows, but while they may share the cow's name, they do not share their GI tract. Manatees are actually hindgut fermenters, where the majority of their digestion occurs from microorganisms in the GI tract past the stomach, namely the cecum and colon. This is most similar to horses and the manatee's closest land relative, the elephant. Number 5. 2021 has been the deadliest year on record for manatees, due to the usual threats to manatees on top of an unusual mortality event, or UME, and they need our help. This is fact. This year has been a difficult year for the Florida manatee, so again, please share this episode to not only celebrate how incredible the Florida manatee is, but also to spread the word about the current disheartening situation. Please also consider helping if you are in the Florida area or donating to a respectable organization, no matter where you are in the world. As always, if anyone has questions, whether it be about Florida manatees or the podcast or anything else, please don't hesitate to reach out to me through email at walkinthewildsidepodcast at gmail.com or through direct message on the Facebook or Instagram page. 
I love being able to talk to listeners and share my passion for teaching and creating a world better for animals and humans alike. Thank you so much for listening in, and I do hope you have learned at least one new thing and enjoyed this segment of Speak Up for Species here on A Walk in the Wild Side, a veterinary podcast. Thank you everyone for listening in, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. For updates on upcoming episodes and additional information on all things wildlife, zoo, aquatic, and exotics, follow us on Instagram at walkonthewildside underscore vet podcast, like us on Facebook, or visit our website. If you liked what you heard, we'd love for you to give us a great rating on your podcasting platform. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us through our social media pages or by email at walkonthewildsidepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you join us for the next episode of Walk on the Wild.